We're going to read Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 22, reading to verse 34, and it's found on page 847 in the Red Bibles in the Pews. Starting at verse 22, and Jesus is speaking. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. Sorry. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Oh, how much more value are you than birds? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying. For it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near, no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Amen. We live in anxious times. I've heard that said, I've read that line uh, on countless occasions over the last few months. We live in anxious times. Uh, I don't think that the horrendous fires that we've experienced over the last uh, eight or ten weeks have created that or even necessarily exacerbated it particularly, uh, so much as to bring it to the surface. The anxiety that we feel is pervasive, gnawing, debilitating. It's fed with an endlessly available news cycle and social media torrent, inevitably with linked articles. One of today's headlines, terror, hope, anger, kindness, the complexity of life as we face the new normal. The United States kills the generals of other nations who then accidentally shoot down a passenger plane killing 200 people nearly on board. They were just taking a plane ride. This morning, we read of a mother weeping and apologising to her baby for bringing him into the world. Or at least that was the headline. The story itself was a little bit different. We live in anxious times. Now, of course, to compare to the first century where Jesus lived and taught, Almost everyone in Australia lives in unimaginable comfort and health 
and security. Uh, that's just a, a, a fact, actually. At the time of Jesus, there were very, very few people indeed who lived above uh, anything above a kind of desperate subsistence moving from one crop, crop to the next, wondering just how bad and who would die of starvation the next year. But even given that, it doesn't change the lived experience. We live in anxious times and into our world every bit as much and perhaps even more than his world in the first century. Jesus says, Luke chapter 12, verse 22, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Now, don't misunderstand him. He knows that this is not just sort of some glib command that he throws out and, and people go, oh yeah, great idea, I'll, 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 I'll do that. He knows that this is not a simple tweak to the way we go about our daily lives, a fairly easy shift of the dial from profound worry to being a person of genuinely peaceful non-anxiety. This is an extraordinary invitation into a wholly different way of conceiving of your life. It's immensely challenging. It is immensely needed. And what we need to do this evening is to figure out how we can possibly settle our hearts in such a way that we can more and more find this path into this peace, the kind of life that Jesus invites us to. We're going to break it out uh, under three headings. Uh, first, the call to a non-anxious life, and then the basis of that call, and then the beautiful fruit of that call. The call itself that Jesus makes, the basis of that call, and then the beautiful fruit of that call. So first then, uh, the call itself, the call to a non-anxious life. Listen again to what Jesus says, verse 22 of Luke chapter 12. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Now in speaking about life, or literally soul, the Greek word is, is psuche, where we get our word psychology from. It's a word that the New Testament uses to speak of that interior part of us, the, the soul. In speaking about the soul and the body, which we keep together, right? You know the phrase, keeping body and soul together? That's a phrase that we, we still use. Jesus is dealing with the two fundamental categories of human existence, body and soul. So the things that are needed for body and soul to stay together, sustenance for life and shelter for health. Uh, not so much housing in this case, although you, you could extend it to that, but clothes so that you don't uh, burn to a crisp under the hot Middle Eastern sun or freeze to death at night. Now, right up front, it's worth recognising that these are the necessities of life. At one level, if anything is worth worrying about, I mean, there's lots of things you don't really need to worry about, but if you don't have these, then you really do worry about these things, don't you? If anything is worth worrying about, these are the things that are to be worried about. Now, of course, as I say, these are not particularly the things that we in modern Western, mostly middle-class Australia, typically do worry about. We're more concerned with the desires and even luxuries of life rather than the necessities. Uh, what I want to say about that is that it means that Jesus' dissection of the pathology of worry will be so much the more relevant to us who don't struggle for necessities. If, if he can say this to people who really struggle for necessities, he sure can say it to us. 
we sure can learn from him. And so what does he say? First with respect to life, soul, and then with respect to body. You see it in verse 23. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? If then you're not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Uh, Luke uh, chapter 12 is a part of uh, what we call in Luke's version of it, the Sermon on the Plain. It's entirely parallel to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, uh, uh, like politicians, although Jesus wasn't a politician, Jesus had what you might call a stump speech. You know, you know the idea of a stump speech? It's just sort of the, the thing you said. And what Jesus said everywhere he went, as he went from town to town and place to place, was he announced the kingdom of God. And so, so he had a version that he gave in, that's recorded in Matthew's Gospel in uh, chapters 5 and 6 and 7. And there's a version that's recorded in um, Luke's Gospel in, in chapter 12. And there are slight differences between them. That makes sense. He's giving them on two different occasions. It doesn't have to be word identical. Uh, and so you'll be familiar with some of the things that Jesus says, perhaps from Matthew's version, which is a little more uh, well known. Jesus' point is made in a straightforward argument. He says, don't worry about your life, and I'll tell you why not. It's three simple points. Point number one, check out the ravens as an object lesson, or in, in Matthew's gospel, the birds of the air. Check out the ravens, the, uh, the cockatoos maybe around here. They don't worry. Racing around and sowing and reaping and gathering into barns and bank accounts. And they don't worry because God feeds them. That's point number one. Point number two, are you not of more value than a bunch of birds? Uh, just by the way, the answer to that is unequivocally yes. Uh, it's been an interesting experience to me to find people, Christians even, who think that humans and animals are of the same value. But Jesus, I don't think, could be possibly clearer than this, could he? He's not saying animals are not of value. God feeds them. He looks after them. He cares for them. But quite clearly, Jesus is making the point that you are of more value than the ravens, the birds of the air. And therefore, point three, since he is your heavenly father, that's how he describes God in, in just a moment later in the passage. It just follows, doesn't it? How much more will he look after you so that there is no need for you to worry about your food, about your life? What's more, he makes exactly the same argument about the other necessity of life, the body. Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Why not worry about what you'll wear? That is that basic protective reality that keeps you alive, your clothes. Again, the argument is very straightforward. Point number one, consider this time not the ravens, the birds of the air, but the lilies of the field, the, the, the lilies, the flowers. Simple, common vegetation all over 
Judea. They grow and develop. They shelter. They don't rush around and do all the things that are necessary for clothing, toiling and spinning. In fact, uh, Jesus goes on uh, so far to say that they're so spectacular that not even Solomon, the richest, the most luxurious man in the history of Israel, not even Solomon, looked a patch on these lilies. They look awesome compared to him. Because it's God who clothes them. It's God who clothes them. That's point one. Point number two, it's the same point. As the previous version, if God so clothes them when they're of entirely temporary value, here today, gone tomorrow, used as fuel for the fire in the oven. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? In our own context right now, that, that text takes on just a little bit more of a pointed meaning, doesn't it? God clothes them and they're just fuel for the fire. So point three, will he not much more clothe you since you are of much greater value? Obviously he will. And with this one, it's followed a gentle challenge. Um, you of little faith. Jesus is not being mean when he says that. Actually, it's an encouragement. He's saying, you know what? It doesn't depend upon your faith. God's provision to you, the promise that Jesus makes that he will provide is not a product of your faith. It's a product of God's faithfulness as your father. And so Jesus concludes, summing up what he's just said in verse 29, and do not keep striving for what you're to eat and what you're to drink and do not keep worrying for it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things and your father knows that you need them. Don't worry about all those things. It's the pagans, it's the nations of the world who worry and strive. It's the Gentiles who haven't got the faintest clue who God is. That's his point. He's the one who knows your very needs before you even ask him. And as always in Jesus, when he gives you a do not, he gives you a do as well. He doesn't just leave you in a vacuum. He doesn't just say, take stuff out of your life. He wants to clear that stuff out so that you can do something far more important and far more significant. Verse 31, instead, strive for his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Rather than striving after those things, fretting and elbowing people and living life tinged with quiet desperation, worrying, whether for necessities or the things we actually end up worrying about. Jesus says, strip that worry out of your life and make some space, get the weeds away. And then the beautiful garden of your striving for the kingdom of God can grow up and flourish. Instead of the frenzy that worry over life and limb creates, replace that with a firm and steady resolve to put the reign, the kingdom of God, as the first priority in your life, striving for it. It's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sweat word, actually. Uh, it's, it's a word that, that has dripping sort of sweat associated with it. Um, agonizo, uh, ag agony. Work really hard. It, it, desire to enter the kingdom because you see that it's the most beautiful thing. It's the most excellent thing that you give yourself to exercise your will, to submit to the kingdom, participate in spreading the kingdom, sacrifice as you can your time and energy and ability and resources for the growth of the kingdom. 
Because this is, this is what the kingdom is, right? Jesus describes the kingdom. It's, it's that reign of God where far from murdering or even hating, what his people do is seek peace and reconciliation with others always. Going the extra mile, turning the cheek. It's, it's that reign of God where far from adultery and immorality, they won't even be looking on another person in order to desire having them. It's that reign of God where far from keeping your oaths, the oaths that you swear. No, no, your yes is just always, only, always a yes. And your no is always, always a no. You're just a person of your word. So you don't need oaths. And on and on and on. This beautiful kingdom. And Jesus says, if you strip the worry out of your life, then you'll be free, the, the ground will be cleared so that this striving for the kingdom to be present in your heart, in your life, in your relationships, in your context, in your world, in your sphere of influence will grow more and more and more. And he makes an astonishing promise. Strive for the kingdom of God and all of that other stuff God will give you. Now, I don't want to lessen the pointedness with which Jesus speaks at this point, because you, you ought to be kind of feeling a bit narked at this time, right? Really? Jesus, really? He's going to give those things? What about the Christians who starve to death? What about the Christians who have been murdered in persecution this week? The, the beheadings, the, the imprisonments. What about them? And you've got to ask him that question. And you need to come to a settled heart on that question. And it takes us to point number two, the basis of this call to a non-anxious life. It's the basis of everything that Jesus taught, actually. It's the basis of everything that Jesus lived. It's the basis of all Christian living in Jesus' footsteps. It is that God really is king. That God is king in Jesus and that the kingdom of God really has come. And that God in Christ does, in fact, rule the world in all his power. And the question that these words of Jesus put to us with, I think, real clarity and power and simplicity is this, do you believe that? I mean, this is what Jesus said, right? This is what his declaration was. This was his stump speech. The kingdom of God has come. Do you believe it? I don't want you to answer that too quickly. Because there's a powerful lot of evidence to the contrary, isn't there? Evidence that is, of course, massively influential in our culture. What is really in control of your life? What is really the most powerful force in the universe? What is really the mind and will that determines how things will turn out? At least according to our culture, is not a mind or will at all. At the very best, it's just the blind laws of science which we can seek frantically to control. More realistically, it's simply nothing. What our culture says, what we're seeing at this moment lived out is the desperation that comes from thinking that we live in just a cold, dark wasteland. 
Do you see it around you? Because the call of Jesus is to be different in this moment. To be different because the kingdom of God has come. Here's a one writer described modern secular Western culture. He wrote, quote, The universe is indifferent. Who created it? Why are we here on this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space? I have not the slightest idea. And I'm quite convinced that no one has the least idea either. And he might as well have added, and therefore who is going to look after you? No one but you. And in that world, I'd say that worry makes a lot of sense. Don't you think? In fact, who would not be anxious if that were the way the world is? Because the petrol in the tank of anxious worrying is always, always the fear of powerlessness. And again, can I invite you, don't you see that that's what's happening in our culture at the moment? This, this last month or two is an experience of total and utter powerlessness and so total and utter anxiety. And so we lash out at the people that are supposed to make things safe, that are supposed to have control. You see, the big question is, how powerless are we? That's what's at stake in this moment as Jesus speaks to us. For who does Jesus say is the powerful one? Who does Jesus say holds the keys to life and death? Who does Jesus say rules over all things, even down to the feeding of the birds of the air and the clothing of the grass of the field? Those aren't just natural biological processes that go on and they do their thing. That's not just the ecosystem working. At least not according to Jesus. It's God looking after it, tending his creation. The one who you know as your heavenly father. Actually, more importantly, the one who relates to you as his own daughter, as his own son. The one who in fact is your heavenly father. Which is precisely why Jesus can say the most astonishing thing of all in this passage. This is the, the, this is the absolute bedrock of it. It's there in verse 23 when Jesus says, For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. It's crucial that you get this point. You see, what Jesus is talking about here is, is not recommending a simple lifestyle. Right? This is not sort of um, an, an ad for a sea change or a green change or something like that. He's not saying, don't worry about the luxuries of life. I mean, just get back to basics, just concentrate on the simple things and live a decluttered, downsized life. Right? That's, that's a beautiful middle-class corruption of what Jesus says. That he's, he's way more radical than that. He's saying, don't even worry about the simple things. Don't even worry about the bare necessities. And he can only do that on the basis of a radical and complete revisioning of what life is all about in the first place, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. 
In the kingdom of God it is. It was for him as he entrusted his life to the good purposes of God. And because he did that, because he accepted death from God, he gave to us life from God. He experienced infinite death in order that we would experience infinite life as his gift. And the life that he gives is the life of the age to come, a life that is more than food and clothing, a life that transcends suffering and sickness and even death. Death for him meant life for us, the life of the age to come, more than food and shelter and clothing. Jesus' point is that life includes those necessities in their right place and with their right significance. But this life that Jesus is on about is not exhausted, is not exhausted by those necessities or even by their lack. One other way you could put that is to say those necessities are not really necessities at all. Not really. For life is more than these things. It's the life of the age to come. It's the life in the kingdom which transcends this life, which includes this life, but is longer and deeper and far more secure, even in the face of death. And when you grasp, when you're gripped by this vision of the kingdom of God and the life that Jesus wins for us in his own death, It enables you to do two remarkable things. On the one hand, it means that you can grow more and more wonderfully resilient because you get that sickness and pain and suffering and ultimately death come to us all. Jesus knows this. He knows that you have a span of life. You will get sick and you will die. It might be a heart attack at the age of 14 or 15. It might be this week or next. It might be at 100 in your bed. It doesn't actually make a difference. All of us will get sick and die, and so we are not shocked. We are not surprised. We are not crushed by these realities. We know that we're subject to the forces of death and evil. And not just us, but our world as well. We know that disasters and breakdowns and fires, made worse by human corruption and weakness and foolishness, these are part of this world as well. And so we're not shocked by them. A friend of mine has a son who's been sick for some years, and both my friend and the son have prayed and prayed. Uh, The answer has not been... Uh, to relieve the suffering and the sickness. And this son is now just kind of really wobbling in his faith. It, it's a tragedy. He, doesn't, he, he has the resources here in what Jesus says to know that these things, sickness and ultimately death, are not a surprise to Christian. There's no shock or amazement that things go badly in this life. But our life is not exhausted by those things. It's not defined by those things. 
Life is more than food. The body is more than clothing, at least in the kingdom of God. And so it means, on the other hand, we aren't complacent about those things. We're not resigned or indifferent to suffering or evil or corruption or death. We work steadfastly, fiercely against them, but not desperately, not despairingly, because we know that true life, the life that we have in Christ, is the life of the age to come, the life of the kingdom of God. Which leads to point three, what is the fruit of this non-anxious life? You see what happens when you don't worry. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, Jesus knows that the the response to worry that almost automatically comes to us is to seek to grab control. It's worth reflecting on in your own experience, actually, where you've had that moment of feeling out of control and what you've tried to do about it. And, and actually, Jesus is even sharper than that because he equally knows that what we think will give us control is wealth. So often, so much, for so many people, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, we so almost instinctively think that wealth is what will give us control in our lives. It's why one of, if not the most fundamental, accurate indicators of your trust that God is your heavenly father, the king in the kingdom who has your life in his hands, will be your attitude and your distribution of your money, what you do with your money. It just is. But Jesus is entirely pragmatic about this. The fact is that wealth and the things that wealth can buy will always be subject to the standard risks of this world. Jesus is not shocked by these things. Thieves will come in and near. Moths will destroy. There's insecurity. There's decay. It's a myth. It's a miserable, stinking myth. Destructive deception and lies that money buys you control of much at all. As Jesus put it earlier on, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? You will die. And not even death can rob you of life in the age to come in Christ. The fact is, that we are completely out of control. We are one false step. We're one drunken driver. We're one cardiac arrest away from calamity. Which, of course, in some people leads them to despair. In others, it leads them to a total self-focus and self-indulgence. And both of those responses make sense unless you know the Heavenly Father, the good Lord of heaven and earth, who knows that you need these things, who knows the number of hairs on your head so intimate is his love for you and he holds you. That your span of life is in his hands, not yours. And that changes everything. It means that you hang loose to your resources because that's all they are. They're just 
resources. They aren't life. They aren't security. When, when Jesus says, sell your possessions and give alms, he doesn't mean send yourself into poverty and destitution and therefore become a burden on others. No, no rather he's saying, use the resources that you have uh, to make investments in the kingdom of the king, in the cause of Christ, in the things that last beyond thief and moth. Because your treasure, that thing that you know really does provide you with security, is in him. It's with the king. It's in his kingdom. Therefore, your heart belongs there as well. And when your heart is there, so your values, your decisions, your investments will follow. In other words, what happens when you don't worry? What's the fruit of a non-anxious life? You are free. You're free. You're unburdened from a task that is beyond you anyway, the task of guarding the span of your life. That task is safe in his hands. And so you can have a glorious, generous, open-handed freedom available to you. It doesn't make you irresponsible or frivolous. On the contrary, it makes you the best of citizens. It makes you the best of friends, the best of spouses, the best of contributors. Because you won't be desperate. You won't be enraged. Because there is a God who is in heaven. And this is his world. Tonight we commission, dear friends, to begin a new venture, a brand new congregation uh, at St Oswald's. And from one angle, it's a loss. There'll be a loss of fellowship as uh, inevitably that congregation develops its own full life and ministry that remains related to ours. We're one church, three sites, many congregations. It will have its own distinct life. It'll be related, but it will be distinct. It's risky. We've tried it once before. Uh, that congregation was led by a lesser leader than Angus, uh, me, and it failed. But bold, sacrificial, risky moves for the sake of the kingdom of God, for more fruitful local outreach to the community of Haberfield. These are exactly the kinds of things you can do when you live separate from worry and anxiety. Do you see? You live free. Sacrifice makes sense. You can take risks because God's got you in his hands. And so we praise God for what he's doing in us and through us as his church and approach the future both as his people collectively as well as in ourselves and in our communities, our friendship networks, our families, in the confidence that God knows our needs and holds us in his hands. And so let me conclude by asking you to do some of that personal reflection which is just so important to do in the light of the scriptures. What are the worries that you carry around with you? What other worries that you carry around with you? Take them out. Have a look at them. Is it what people think of you? Whether you'll be happy in your relationships or will you find that relationship? Is it to do with your work that you'll ever find happy, meaningful work? Perhaps that if people really knew who you were, they would hold you in contempt 
or at least disinterested? You're a disappointment to people, perhaps your parents? Are you worried about the state of the world? And, and allow those worries to be surfaced, give them voice, and then ask yourself some questions. Is God my heavenly father? Does he know my need? Is he feeding the birds of the air and clothing the lilies of the field right now? Or is that just stuff going on? Does he care? Can I trust him? So that I can be released from worry to constructive effort and prayer. Does he know my financial needs, my emotional needs, my loneliness, my lack of direction? Am I of value to him? And the invitation of Jesus tonight is simply this. He is your heavenly father. He is your heavenly father. Trust him. And decline to worry so much about those things this week. Amen.